JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 122. I know we've been on a wander, and I know it's not exactly been about the JFK assassination directly, but it really is required reading, or in this case, I mean listening. That is, if you truly want to understand the context under which all of these factors come together, and how the Cubans and members of the Cosa Nostra and the CIA all had their hands in something more, and at times, together, when it comes to this topic of the JFK assassination. It certainly was not exhaustive, but we did spend six episodes on the history of the Mafia, and surely there is more on the Mafia to come, especially when we begin to converge all of these topics at their most important point of convergence, which is Cuba. So before we get to the actual intersection of all of this, and while we are still on the wander, let's spend an episode or two and gain a little more understanding of the important history of Cuba so that you can understand why this island fits into the story so neatly and how it became a natural place of convergence for all the evil forces that we are talking about in this part of the story that is the JFK assassination. But before we wander into the history of Cuba, let's talk a little bit about what we learned in the first six history episodes on the Mafia, knowledge that we should take with us in these next series of episodes and along the way as we continue to stitch this whole thing together. This is not an exhaustive list, but surely these points I will enumerate now are important to take note of. First takeaway. The Mafia's biggest expansion came in the 1920s and was centered around providing alcohol and gambling and prostitution during Prohibition. Particularly in regards to alcohol, the public just didn't see the Mafia's supplying of hooch, as my Italian grandmother called it. Well, they just didn't see it as a terribly bad thing, almost like the Mafia was providing a needed service, supplying alcohol to the populace when no one else could. So its growth in this period was in some odd way welcomed by the American public, or at least ignored as an illegal activity. Second takeaway, the rapid growth of all these vices and the expansion into them required a formal organizational structure within the mafia, and they adopted one. It was a highly successful structure that provided for upward mobility of made men, It had a system of economic distribution and partnership, 
and help to preserve the heads of the crime families through its layers of organizational insulation. That provided sensational stability, despite an occasional turf war. In that era they were in, secrecy amongst the members combined with a cultural imperative that the secret oaths of made men would never be revealed, well, they were enough. You see, they were not living in a world perpetrated by electronic surveillance or cell phone cameras or listening devices. It was just their word against all others. And no one else was talking, because if they did, their life might be in danger. Third takeaway, we know that these mafia men adopted bribery as a fundamental approach to keeping law enforcement and politicians off their backs. And we know that, at least in the beginning, they were good at it. We also know that rules, laws, and ways to detect such illegal acts in those days weren't very good. And that made it harder to prove and thus easier to say yes to a bribe if you were a politician. Public officials were, in general, more corrupt in those days, and partly because they were more likely to be able to be offered and more likely to accept bribes and engage in illegal activity and still avoid detection and prosecution. This early interaction and a so-called success at it led to a fundamental intermingling of the mafia and elements of local law enforcement and related elements of the federal, state, and local political and regulatory machinery. Not everywhere, and not everyone, and not always, but certainly a level of corruptive connection that was significant across a good part of the country, and certainly highly embedded in those cities in which the major crime bosses operated, like New York and Chicago, and embedded enough in other places too, even with influence in cities like Dallas. Hmm, imagine that. Okay, fourth takeaway. And I will just say, how about those unions? We see the Italians empty the boats in New York as they touch the shore of this new country, and they settle in New York itself and in Little Italy specifically, and they see how important the docks are to fundamental trade. And they see how controlling the labor on the docks gives them power and an ability to steal the goods that have come to port, goods that are physically removed from the custody of their owners. And also, they see the ability to control the things that need to come in illegally, such as alcohol and drugs. So the mafia quickly figured out that infiltration of the union and union management was a way to get after the docks and run them. And it was their first soiree into the underworld of union corruption. And that model would be carried and repeated in many different union venues, including, finally, the settling in with the Teamsters Union, which was the most expansive penetration that they had ever achieved. And they did that first through Dave Beck and then Jimmy Hoffa. And you'll hear more about all of that when we finally cover it in separate episodes. Okay, the fifth takeaway. We see the government use the little power that it did have to get after these scoundrels. How did they do it? Well, by using the deportation laws to send the leaders where they could, out of the country, and, and back to Italy when they could. The story of Lucky Luciano and his deportation and ban from the U.S. 
will play into things heavily in the next few episodes as we tie in the history of the island of Cuba and the history of the mafia on the island, much having to do with Luciano and greatly influenced by his deportation from America. Okay, sixth takeaway. Simply put, we know that this was the period before the internet, before social media, before cell phones, before cell cameras, before most things in the electronic age, before there was a camera on every street corner in America to record your every public move, before there was a cell phone or cell camera listening to and recording everything you have ever said and done and taking it down for future reference, before there was an unerasable record of your life that would refute even the most cleverly articulated alibi or hide the most hideous of crimes committed in broad daylight, as they often were in those days by the mafia. And what all that meant was that mean men, well, in fact, evil men, could do what they wanted and mostly get away with it in the absence of an eyewitness. And they could go as far as killing a man in broad daylight, perhaps in someone who might have randomly witnessed it. It was enough to buy silence because otherwise, with the mafia, it might mean your death. All of this created quite an environment to be able to do bad things and not get caught, or at least not get prosecuted and go to jail. Okay, seventh takeaway. The ranks were tight and Omerta was strictly adhered to, which is why, at least for a long time, the rules of silence were an incredible shield for the mafia. There were about 3,000 to 5,000 made men in the Cosa Nostra across the country at that time. Made men who somehow miraculously seemed to keep their mouths shut, and the moment that they didn't or they violated Omerta in some small way, they were gone. There was no second chance. They would end up mysteriously missing or laying dead, sometimes for all to see in the middle of the road or in their cars or perhaps just shot in the mouth somewhere to send a message to others. And if they thought you were going to be a snitch, there was no first chance even. Still, how could 3,000 to 5,000 men keep the secrets and not get caught? Miraculous, you say? Well, they occasionally did get caught for a crime, but not for exposing a crime syndicate. And there is a difference. And those that got caught, they would pay by doing the time, but they would not rat. So that would be the end of it from the law enforcement point of view. And if you were the criminal that did some time, you might even move up. If you got out of prison and did your time and just kept your mouth shut, the mafia would take care of your family while you were in because the mafia took care of their own. They were a family. Remember? Familia. And blood was thicker than water. Folks, it was a different time in the world. Yes, there have always been snitches, but the process of choosing these made men and the times they lived in and the customs of the day during that period really created a bubble of protection that lasted almost 40 to 50 years in the 20th century before society finally caught up with the whole deal and finally got after it and finally started to get rid of it. And culturally, it began to crack from within. Okay, eighth takeaway. We know that the FBI had weak federal laws in which to rely upon and challenge these kind of structures. 
There were no conspiracy laws like RICO at the time. And with no one on the mafia side of the equation talking or ratting out anyone, and hardly any electronic surveillance available, and still with a danger involved if the local mafia were poked by the FBI. And remember, those mafia members were in bed with the local law enforcement officials. Well, all sorts of problems were then created if you did that. And to top it off, the mafia may have had compromising information on J. Edgar Hoover himself. Well, that is a whole nother story, and we will get around to telling it. But it accounts, at least in part, for why Hoover himself was not as zealous as others may have been in the period before the Great Awakening. That is, not as zealous when it came to getting after the Mafia. Okay, the ninth and last takeaway. We learned that the federal government, while they did not like the existence of the Mafia, they needed the Mafia in the middle of World War II, and it resulted in a top-level connection between the Mafia and the federal government, including the U.S. military. One that would, some 15 to 20 years later, form the basis of other transactional activities in Cuba and elsewhere that would figure into the JFK assassination story. Perhaps Senator McClellan said it best when he stated that the mafia was attempting to set up its own government of sorts to supersede all else, all other institutions that now govern us. Look, there are some histrionics to that statement, but in some ways, the aim was just that. I think they would have taken over building the roads and generating the electricity if there had been good money in it, and if they could have. And running the police department? Well, don't even go there. That would have been a dream moment in their existence. And really, in their own way, they kind of tried to do that. Now that we've reviewed the takeaways, it's time to turn to a little more wander. And for the next couple of episodes, we'll concentrate on a bit of the history related to Cuba and start to produce some of the mafia characters who figured into the island's history and who are relevant to how the mafia began to intersect with the Cuban government and with the CIA. And just remember, you can't write this stuff. Well, that's all we're going to cover today in this mini-wander that is episode 122. Join us in the next couple of episodes for our first trip together back to Cuba. Thank you for listening to episode 122 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.